Hi, this is Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I have with me today someone that, that we profiled um, with our National Police Association Facebook page. And uh, so I wanted you to meet her because um, not only is she one of the busiest women I've ever seen, um, but she's doing some really great work out there for the law enforcement profession, for our families, um, and quite frankly, for anyone who really supports law enforcement and police officer mental health. Teresa Kondek, welcome to the program. Thank you, thank you for having me. So, uh, wow, we have so much to talk about, but first and foremost, I wanna talk about Charlie. Tell us about your husband. Um, as, a, as an officer or as a husband and father? Well, let's do <laughs> he's, both. He's pretty amazing in both roles, I'll have to say that. Um, he started his career at NYPD. Um, he was there five years before um, transferring to Florida. Um, I met him when he, transferred to Florida and uh, started his career at, at Tarpon Springs Police Department. Um, I mean, we, we have five kids. Um, I don't think we ever had less than seven, eight kids in the house <laughs> all the time. So he worked midnights, I worked days. Um, we coached soccer. I mean, just crazy, busy life, literally just handing kids back and forth when one would get home and, you know, and it worked for us. It was great. We loved our family life um, and he had a great life. He did. Awesome. Um, unfortunately, uh, you lost Charlie in the line of duty and, and America lost a hero. Talk about how he was killed in the line of duty. So on December 21st, around 2 a.m. Um, in 2014, two calls came out um, around the same time. One was for a noise complaint. One was for a bar fight. Um, Charlie, someone responded to the noise complaint, but Charlie radio in and said, you know, I'll, I'll take this call and closer. I'll, you know, when I finish this up, I'll catch up with the bar fight. So he took someone else's call, um, responded to, um, a house where someone had complained that there was loud music playing from a car. When he got to an apartment complex, there was a female sitting in a car in the passenger seat, um, loud music was playing. Again, it's two in the morning, so it's really dark. Um, he gets out of his car and as he's approaching this vehicle, what he doesn't understand, I mean, what he wasn't aware of um, was that he walked in the middle of pretty much a gunfight between two felons. Um, we call the person the inmate. We've never said his name. So um, the inmate was there to shoot his friend for um, narking on him, he said. Um, he was out on parole. Uh, he was 23, uh, convicted felon, 30 felonies. Um, he had a stolen gun with him and he was he violated his parole. So um, when he was running away from the other person he was there to shoot, as he was running up to the car my husband was walking up to, I'm assuming he thought my husband was there to respond to the fighting, but my husband had no idea about what was going on. He shot at my husband seven times. One bullet hit above the collarbone, severed his spine. Um, we believe he was paralyzed at that time. He was able to radio um, that he needed more units and he tried to key up after that, but he, 
there was no sound. Um, my husband was able to shoot once back, but the bullet was angled toward the roof. So we're assuming it, he fired as he was falling. Um, and then as my husband fell back, the inmate gets in the car. My husband was standing behind and backs over him and pulls forward with my husband there. So within a minute and under two minutes of getting out of his car, he was shot at seven times, ran over and pulled forward by a car. And this is all in the course of, of you know, what the public would call, uh, you know, a routine call, right? Routine, yes. A you know, very innocuous call. Um, you know, and, and he was murdered in cold blood. There's no other yeah. way to say it. So here you are. Um, now you've got five kids. Now you had to go through uh, a trial of your husband's murderer. So there were so many things that happened before that. Um, as, the per as the inmate sped away, other officers were coming to um, back Charlie up because there was a key call with no sound. Um, they could hear a little you know, panic in his voice when he called, which is not like him. Mm -hmm. um, he was, you know, 22 years seasoned officer with a lot of experience from NYPD. Um, but as they were coming to respond to him, the inmate and the car almost hit them head on. So one had turned around to chase that car, not even knowing what it was for. And once they apprehended him, he had crashed into a pole and tried to run, but they did, they were able to catch him and um, detain him. And that's when they learned everything that happened. So, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for the guys for, for catching him and just, you know, before trial, we had a lot of police threats. Um, we had to have security around our home. Um, you know, my kids had a lot of comments and stuff in school. And so that was a big challenge on top of, you know, losing their dad in such a public violent way. Mm -hmm. Um, but even at the cemetery, I had, um, I'm trying not to get upset thinking about it, but, you know, in the cemetery, people would drive by and yell, you know, F the police and stuff like that while we're sitting there. And then things would, would be taken off of his headstone and, you know, tire marks on it. And then, you know, people just vandalizing stuff. So I, I had to take six months to, to, uh, convince myself it was okay to move him to a private spot so that, you know, the kids and I could go and, and sit with him in peace and not have to worry about, you know, people vandalizing it. And it was just, you know, his badge was on the headstone. So it was really, it was bad. So just dealing with that and, you know, trying to get pension changes because that was so outdated. I'm the only widow in my husband's agency, thank God. Um, but you know, there were a lot of things that needed to be changed and then just, and then trial on top of everything was, you know, we, you know, probably I'd say three weeks before um, one of our hearings, we were noticed that the inmate wanted to train, change his verdict to guilty mm -hmm. in lieu of some kind of, um, he just, he wanted um, life in prison, not the death penalty. Right. So we were not okay with that either, but he was able to apologize and, you know, you know, read the sob story to us, which, you know, you went, you left that night to kill someone and, and you right. did, you know, but, you know, just enduring all of that and not being able to speak our own impact statements during the trial until everybody was gone and the case was over. And then, you know, we deliberated over five hours and then 
we got a verdict of the death penalty and then that was taken away because that was an error too. And it just seemed like it was just like one battle after the other <laughs> on top of grieving and trying to figure out life without him here. Yeah, it's, and I think that's one of the things, especially, you know, because this was a somewhat smaller agency, um, mm -hmm. the first line of duty death, right? And, and very often we're, we, the law enforcement profession are not prepared for this. And so it's hard right. for us to support the family, you know, beyond the funeral and things like that, because like you said, and I don't think people think about this a lot. There's so much bureaucracy and paperwork um, involved for a family mm -hmm. who loses a police officer in the line of duty. And here you are, you're a, now a single mom with five kids trying to navigate all that. Right. Right. And, and, and now they're, you know, they're older and I had two still in high school at the time. And, you know, and I, I don't care if they're five or, or 20, you know, when their dad's taken, that's, you know, it's just, and then, and then as a mom, you know, I, I, I had the knock on the door at a little after three in the morning. And then, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, you know, we live in a rural area. <laughs> There's right. no knocking on my door. I have a gate. We don't have right. neighbors, you know? So when I looked out the window, there were just like flashing lights everywhere and I could see different agency cars. So I thought, well, you know, I live like 15 minutes from the detention center. Maybe someone was, you know, maybe someone was in the area. They were like, whatever. Right. But when I opened the door and saw his sergeant there, you know, I just, I remember him saying, you know, if that, if you ever hear a knock on the door and that uniform is there, I won't be here, but I promise everything will be okay. And, and yeah. some of that was right. <laughs> some not so much, but. Yeah. That um, we all tell our families that, and, and we all hope that, that it'll be, you know, that yeah. it'll be true. So you went through all this. I mean, just a police wife's worst, worst, worst nightmare. Um, but you didn't just sit, you know, lay down in your kitchen in the fetal position. Um, you decided to um, move forward. And, and in doing that, um, you, you started writing, um, you do speaking, you've got a website. Talk about all the things that you do having moved forward from Charlie's murder. So from that, I'll back up to that fetal position because I did stay in that. I did spend a lot of time on my, in my closet on the floor, just crying, 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 mm -hmm. trying to keep it together because, you know, as a mom, I had to stand in a hospital and have deputies bring my kids, you know, and not tell them what was wrong. And we lived like 45 minutes away from where Charlie worked, you know, right. northern um, area. So to stand there and prepare myself to tell my kids something that would affect them and just cause them sadness the rest of their life, you know, was like the hardest thing as a mother and mm. to not be able to help them, you know, they just all went in five different directions. They all grieved differently. Um, I, I would think I, you know, I'd get one where they were a little, you know, consoled a little more and maybe, you know, thinking a little clearly and it would just be the next one and the next one, then me. And then I couldn't help myself and then I couldn't help them. So it was like this long, long, it was a long time. It was a, a struggle just to get out of bed and to not, you know, carry a hate for anybody and not, you know, it's so easy to be negative and just stay in grief and, you know, and self pity, but I didn't, you know, we weren't like that as a family before and I didn't want to, you know, 
just fall in that rabbit hole. And so I talked to the kids and, you know, Charlie was very patriotic. Um, his birthday is the 4th of July. He donated blood uh, regularly and, you know, the kids would, would donate blood with him and he'd try to tell them the importance of things like that. And my kids, you know, when the Pledge of Allegiance came on in our house, even if the kids were walking by, they would stop, you know, everything was very, you know, he, he shared a lot of history with them and that was just their thing with their dad. And, and so his birthday, we decided to start an annual blood drive. I think we're on our fifth one this year. Um, and it's been amazing that we've had a lot of donors and that went really well. Um, but we were still missing something for his end of watch. So mm -hmm. um, about three, he was killed three years before retiring. And we were looking for just a small cabin to go to where we took our kids every year to hike and in Tennessee and North Carolina. Um, that was like our go-to place. One, it wasn't crazy expensive. You know, with five kids, everybody wanted to bring a friend. So that was close to 10 kids all the time. Um, so it was something we enjoyed to do. He loved the mountains. He loved it there and could not wait to retire and go. But I mean, life had other plans and took that from us. So I talked to the kids last year and um, I decided, you know, if it, it's okay to do this without him, but I'm going to do it in a way where people will remember him. I can use this cabin as a place for officers to go to give back. So this is my way to give back um, and to thank all of them who stood beside us, because I, I honestly can't think of a single minute that I ever felt like I had no one to call, you know, and these are guys that spent, you know, rotated time sleeping on my couch and grocery shopping for me and teaching my kids to drive and, you know, going to school and saying happy birthday to them like their dad would. And, you know, I mean, how do you, those aren't things you can teach people to do. You know, these are just, right. you know, and people don't see that side of law enforcement. And I'm, I'm really passionate about that. <laughs> and, you know, the media doesn't always show, show a, a positive side of law enforcement. So I've, I've made it a point to do that and to share like all the positive things that happen to us and, you know, just our, our way to give back. So that's what, where, where we are with the cabin right now is I've secured the land. I have power, um, septic, the well should be going in this week. I'm in the middle of ordering blueprints. I found a builder that is veteran owned and operated. So that was pretty neat. Um, they're really excited to do this. Um, so that's where we are right now. So what's your ultimate vision for this mountain retreat? Like, what do you see for the future? Um, how is it that you want to help law enforcement with this? So my goal is to do this at just the cleaning cost and maybe the average of like the electric, which would be hardly nothing, honestly, for right. them to go. Um, because we all know cops aren't millionaires. They don't make a lot of money. And um, I don't know, I just want this to be a place. And it, it's against the Nantahala forest. So there's no neighbors. Um, and hopefully when everything's done, it should be around 23 acres. So there's, I mean, there's shooting there, um, zip line, just a place to go to just get away from everybody and everything, you know? Yeah. Now you, like I said, you know, you're, you're also a writer and, and um, one of the things that you um, had written that really impacted me was you, you basically wrote a letter to 
future police officers, right? Can you talk about that? Right. So I, I started writing because I, you know, I tried counseling and it's hard to find a counselor that understands trauma. It's hard to find a counselor that understands law enforcement. It's hard to find a counselor that understands widows that have trauma that were married to law enforcement officers because everything's so publicized and, you know, you're just, you have to live in this little bubble as a police wife anyway, because, you know, not everybody likes your husband and, and you know, everybody has comments and people say things to your kids and we're pretty tough skinned people and we never let any of that bother us. But man, when, when you're a widow, it's a whole different ball game. You know, I get the, oh, sorry, sadly, that's what they sign up for. And, you know, just comments, just ignorant comments that people right. really don't think much about. But, um, but I remember one night I'm like, I, I need to figure out an, an outlet. I can't just keep holding this in. And so I just started writing. And one day I was like, you know what, I'm just going to post this. I'm, you know, whoever doesn't like it can delete me and <laughs> move on. So, and when I wrote that, oh my gosh, it was like, my, my inbox was full. I kept getting messages and, you know, like, this is what I feel like. And I couldn't get it out. And, you know, this is exactly what our life is like. And, you know, I'm in a private group with law enforcement widows and there's probably 700 of us in one group. And, you know, it, it's just a lot. So my son went into the police academy after my husband was killed, um, which just ripped my heart out. But, you know, this is, this is what his daddy did. This is what he looked up to. It's what he's used to and what he wants to do. So he's an officer now. Um, but as he was getting ready, I thought, I have nothing to pass to my son. My husband's not here to pass anything on to him. So I had a lot of, a lot of the um, guys write letters to him from all over the country, NYPD, to Team South Florida, to you know, some of his, his dad's friends. And, um, and I thought, man, you know, what can I give him as a mom? So I just started writing things and then posted that too. And that went viral. Um, so now that letter is actually read to officers at the Clearwater Police Department who go through um, orientation. So they're read the letter, they're given a card, and then they get a copy of the letter. And I put each officer's name on it. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's an extraordinary piece of writing. I, I you know, <laughs> Thank you. encourage everybody to, to read it, really, to read everything that, that you write. <laughs> What do you want um, people to understand about being a police widow? And I know that's a huge, huge question for the couple of minutes that we have left. Well, you know, when we, I, I didn't want to look at the news. I didn't want to see the negative comments and, and people don't understand, you know, when they post something like that, I didn't like it when the inmate's name was mentioned every time my husband's was. You know, I just felt like it take it just took a lot of 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 the story away from my husband and, and gave it to this inmate. Um, I've done a few commercials about gun control because the gun that the inmate had was left in an unlocked car and it was stolen and made its way from Jacksonville to Tarpon Springs. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, comments that people leave on stories like that, that hurts, you know, and, and we're used to it, you know, being married to officers, we hear comments all the time, pig's wife, this and that. And, you know, I've heard it all and you learn to just brush it off. But when you read things like that online, you know, my kids read some of that stuff. And, and even when my, my husband's officers um, that he worked with took my daughter to prom, there were so many nasty comments. And even that kind of article just took away from everything. Um, but I, I don't know, you know, telling us like, 
um, I lost my grandfather, I know what it feels like. And then <laughs> it's not the same or they lost their dog. It's still grief and it's still lost, but it's not, it's not the violent, you know, death and trauma that we had to endure. But even if you don't have anything to say, and I've had friends not even talk to me anymore because they didn't know what to say. And that was kind of, you know, you kind of look for your friends and then everybody disappears because they don't know what to say. But even just sending a text saying, you know, I don't know what to say, but I'm like, you know, I'm thinking about you guys today or yeah. just anything like that instead of just like disappearing because man, the ones that were close to my husband, a few just walked away and, you know, we'd like to hear stories we haven't heard before, you know, right. and, and, and not be afraid to mention their name to us. Cause I can assure you, I didn't forget Charlie was killed. <laughs> so saying his name to me or asking a question or talking about him, isn't going to hurt me. You know, it's not going to remind me that he's gone. Teresa, where can people find out more about you, read your writings and find out more about um, the mountain retreat that you're building? I had a lot of people reach out and ask for um, certain articles and things like that. So I sat up late one night and just started this website and just started compiling everything on it. So it took me about six months to get everything done. But um, it's my first and last name, Teresa, T-E-R-E-S-A-K-O-N-D-E-K.com. Um, and there's a lot of tabs on there and blue family stories and just, there's so many things on there. <laughs> it was just hard to keep up with everything, but I did start the Charlie K cabin on there. So I need to update that. All right. Well, we appreciate you spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Put the gun down! Put the gun down! Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.